Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone at the recent Stella Awards. Brian Scott, the CEO of Ty Scott Records, was presented with the coveted Dr. Bobby Jones Lifetime Achievement Award during the round-the-clock media celebration. Every time music gets played, someone gets paid. John Kellogg is fond of saying this. The musician, lawyer, book author, and Berkeley College of Music professor follows the statement with his signature advice for anyone involved in music performance and production. You should get paid, not played. As president of Ty Scott Records and Ty Scott Films, the oldest African-American-owned international gospel record company in the world, Bryant has created opportunities, influenced lives, and launched careers. He is credited for signing and developing major artists, including John P. Key, the GMWA Women of Worship, Dr. Bobby Jones, Dietrich Haddon, the Rance Island Group, the Anointed Pace Sisters, Carmen, Bishop Noel Jones, Darwin Hobbs, Shirley Murdoch, and Nesby, and most recently, Anthony Brown and Casey Jade. I know that's not an exhaustive list. It just keeps going and going and going. Right? Yes, it does. Right. John P. Kellogg is a Berkeley online music business instructor and the former assistant chair of music business management department of Berkeley. He is practicing entertainment lawyer who specializes in the music industry. He has represented clients such as LSG, the OJs, G. Depp, and the late Gerald Levert. Brian and John are here to educate us on the ins and outs of the gospel music industry. Brian and John, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, we're so privileged to have you both here, and I tell you, you both are just making your mark in uh, gospel me- uh, music and in the music industry. Um, and we want to talk a little bit about how you're anchored and centered as you go about just uh, turning heads and, and shaping the industry. But one thing I'd like to lead off with, uh, Brian, if you can give us a history of Ty Scott. Okay. Well, Ty Scott was founded by my father, the Honorable Bishop Dr. Leonard Scott, uh, in 1976. It was founded, uh, he wanted to, uh, well, back up, he wanted to be a musician and his parents told him they would give him a year to make it. He didn't make it. So the alternative was to go to school or support cut off. And he ended up going to school, became a dentist and got saved during that period and uh, had put down music because music was his idol. It was his God. Uh, He said, but one day he was praying and God downloaded. He had never written a song. God downloaded a whole album. And he went to the church musician and said, what can I do with these songs? And Church musician said, let's make a record. They made a record. He went to see his attorney and said, his attorney said, you need to copyright this stuff. He said, well, I don't know what that, you know. He said, you need to form a company. So the cousin's name was Tyson. His name was Scott. So Ty Scott was birthed 
just to put out the church record. And people thought he was a real label and started calling him. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that's our humble beginnings. And God has uh, just allowed us to blossom and grow uh, since that time. Awesome. Um, and one more question. Um, your father, and, and, and I draw some reference now to your father because he was the founder. He sort of was the progenitor of Ty Scott. He has quite a legacy. Uh, oh, yeah. And he's known as being a very patient individual. Um, he can be a savvy businessman. He, I've seen him do that. And um, when we watch him perform, even at his, uh, his, golden, his golden age right now, and he's still yes. going strong, this man is a powerhouse. And he loves to praise the Lord. He loves to get out there and just start singing God's music. Um, out of all the artists that I've mentioned so far, I know there are others, but um, can you give us some stories of what he's done to help artists that the world probably doesn't even know? Well, I could tell you this. I remember as a, as a kid sitting in the living room in Indianapolis and a group of men came by who would later become known as Commission. It was Fred Hammond and mm. Michael Brooks. They were all in our, you know, our living room. And Dad was talking to them. You know, they weren't even known then. And he was supposed to sign them. And they got involved with a, a manager who actually steered them a different way. And as a consolation prize, this manager felt so bad about steering Commission a different way. He said, I got this cassette tape I want you to hear of this guy out of North Carolina. So he sent the cassette tape down to my dad and that cassette tape was of John P. Key. So right. John Key was the consolation prize on losing commission. Wow. Imagine. And it wasn't bad. Fred Hammond, John Key, was going to put I'll one take it. Oh, I'll take it. But he's just, you know, he's, he's a great, you know, first of all, he's a great inspiration to me. So as, you know, I stepped into the leadership role of Ty Scott in the late eighties, and uh, off of a word from the Lord, um, backstory to that is I was, I was on my way to dental school. I was in the summer. I'd have been accepted. I had one, I was f- finishing a physics course as I was accepted after three years of college and had one course to finish. And I was working at the record company and I went over to get a check signed from him so we could pay the bills. And he was writing the check and he looked up at me and he said, this record company is too expensive of a hobby. I think it's time to close it down. And when he said that, it just didn't sit well with me. So I decided to pray about it. And that is one of the times that God audibly spoke to me. I heard God's voice and he said, help your father. So I went back and told dad I needed to help him and called the dental school and asked them, could they hold my space for a year? And they said, certainly not. Um, (laughs) So stepped out on faith here to do this and God breathed on it. You know, John P. Keith began to blow up. We were able to sign Dr. Bobby Jones during his heyday. And uh, yeah. And so, but his dad's, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm looking now at my children. If one of them came to me and said, if God told me to help you or do something that I knew wasn't making any money was actually costing money. You know, just that example he showed me of stepping out on faith, even on the word that I gave him. Uh, that has helped me. And through that, you know, we have helped many artists through a lot of things. Let me speak a little bit and expound on the history of Ty Scott Records, if you don't mind, Uh, as well as our our family connection here. Uh, I remember uh, back in 76, between 76 and 78, uh, I had come back to Cleveland, Ohio, to go to law school. I was in law school. And of course, I 
had been in the music business and would read Billboard every week. And I saw an article about an artist from Cleveland, a gospel artist named William Sawyer from Cleveland. And of course, I didn't know anything about it, but I was intrigued that there was a gospel artist from Cleveland, Ohio. And then uh, as it got into the 80s, and Bryant, you may not remember this, but I used to visit Liz's dad, Jimmy, my cousin Jimmy, who's my first cousin. And your mother, who was my uh, second cousin, uh, Bryant, uh, Sue brought you by Jimmy's house one of those times. I don't know if you remember that or not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And you would play with my kids and you guys were maybe 12, 13 years yeah. old. So I saw him as a little kid. So to see the progress uh, moving through with John P. Key and all of the other success just really warms my heart. And, uh, and, and particularly to think that uh, William Sawyer was one of the first national successes, I believe, on Ty Scott Records. That is, that is correct. And w- William Sawyer, I remember him because I was a kid and, you know, I just remember dad going to the Grammys or go, would go to different places. You know, I didn't know where he was going. I just knew he was in the music business. But I remember him telling us the story. He, he would tell mom and he would tell the kids. He would say, hey, I think we got it. I think we got it. Because he said, all these years I've been calling radio because he would, he would pull teeth and he would go in his office and call radio stations that he kind of did do a role for a while. <laughs> And he said, I've called radio stations and begged them to play my records. And they would lie to me and say they're playing it, not playing it. He said, but I know I had something with Bill Sawyer when radio stations started calling me, asking where it was. I had sent it to him, but the fact that they were calling me, asking me, because they probably thrown the first one away. But uh, when they start calling you, asking you about it, then you know you have a hit. And I remember Bill Sawyer, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. That's uh, right. Was the uh, just a hymn? It was. Yeah. It was the first major hit that uh, Ty Scott experienced. That's right. Well, I'd like to ask John, uh, yeah. who influenced you in your career? What made you? Who was your big influence? Well, it's interesting. I first got interested in the in the music business when I went to a Miracles concert uh, when I was about eleven or twelve years old. My sister took. And I saw the Miracles who had Smokey Robinson at that time. And I saw what they did to the audience. In other words, they killed them. And I said, man, that's got to be a wonderful thing to do to be able to make people happy and feel good like this. So that was kind of my first inspiration. And then as I got into high school, there was a club here in Cleveland, Ohio called Neil's Casino, which is kind of a historic club on what they call the Tan circuit and the tan circuit was nightclubs around the country back in the 60s that would appeal to both white and black audiences so all of the motown groups would come through leo's casino which i only lived a couple of blocks from every week so i used to catch the teenage matinees and on one of the performances it was billed as the temptations versus the oj And the OJs at that time were just regional artists. As a matter of fact, they lived right around the corner from me. They stayed with their uncle. They were from Canton. They stayed with their uncle. And we used to go and sit on the steps and listen to them practice. So they were kind of the local heroes. And they were so dynamic. And Eddie Levert was such a dynamic performer. I made up in my mind that I wanted to do that. 
And it took a number of years before the OJs became successful. And I got to a point where I said, if the OJs can't make it, I'm giving up music because anybody, that, any group that that's talented and can't make it, then I know the business is too crooked for me to be, to be involved in. And sure enough, in 71, uh, when they signed with Philly International Records and had backstabbers, they became uh, international superstars. And that kind of solidified in my mind that I'm going to pursue a career in music. Okay. Now, what would you tell budding artists? And this is a question for both of you, but Philip, you answer it first, please. For budding artists that are just well, now starting, what would you tell uh, them? Do they need to be a triple threat? Yeah, they do. And, and uh, it's so much more than music now. But uh, uh, the other thing that I'd tell them first is that you have to love this music business. It really has to be out of the love because you will go through trials and tribulations. That if it isn't something that you really decided that you're going to stick with and that you love, you're not going to be able to endure the hard road that you have to go through. So I encourage you artists to educate themselves. There's more opportunities for education in the music business today than there ever has been. And so, uh, and, and there's resources, there's courses like the one I teach, the book I've written, Take Care of the Music Business, and others. It's important to study what the music business is about because, as I say, every time the music gets played, Somebody gets paid, and you want to get paid, not play. I, I like that. I like. I that. like that. That's a good thing. <laughs> and, and it's uh, how many groups have suffered because of management taking advantage of them, and even children starting out in the industry whose parents were their managers. I mean, we've read story after story of of them just being taken advantage of. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. Now, I take it that uh, that you and Bryant collaborate on some business ventures regarding music. If, if so, what, what type, like, say, for instance, if you're in the business uh, of music and, and, and you're doing the sort of connecting and you're producing this and the other, have you and Bryant collaborated on some things with artists or? Well, that's, well, yeah, we have. Most recently, one of his artists, Shirley Murdoch, who I used to represent uh, back when she had her hit back in the 80s as we lay. Uh, there was a, a, a legal matter that uh, Bryant called me about regarding her, and I think it worked out, didn't it? Yeah, I, believe, I hope so. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got you. I got you. I got you. So, so in that respect, uh, the interesting thing is that uh, uh, Bryant had an excellent attorney back in the 80s that started working with his label, Max Siegel. And I knew Max yeah. because we collaborated because he had an act that my, that Walter Williams of the OJ signed. And uh, this was back in the early 80s. And of course, both he and I were young entertainment lawyers from the Midwest, so we had that connection. And uh, the great thing about uh, an organization, I'm a, a member of the Black Entertainment and Sports Lawyers Association, is that we very carefully guard our clientele. In other words, you don't find too many lawyers that are going to try to go and steal clients. So even though I knew about Ty Scott Records and Brian Scott, I couldn't applaud him more for having someone talented like Max Siegel as an attorney. And uh, Max has gone on to do great things as well. So I'm proud of them both. Oh, yeah, Def definitely. And actually, Max is now part of the family. You know, he married Jennifer Satterfield, who is a Brown. So she's... Right. She's she's one of the cousins. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know, oh, bro. We're, we're, yeah, I mean, we're, we're connected all kind of ways. <laughs> well, along that line, you, you mentioned that you were um, a help to Bryant with a matter, particular matter with an artist. Um, how does it feel working with talent and their agents, and what are some of the pitfalls you try to help them avoid? I try to what? Some of the pitfalls that you help them to avoid? Uh, it, it really comes down to a matter of relationships, competency, honesty, and loyalty. Uh, in my book, uh, Take Care of Your Music Business, I have three big P's, and one of them is proper perspective that deals with the relationships that you form. The music business is such a small business that the relationships that you form have to be very important to you because the people you meet today, you're going to see down the line. And uh, like they say, you meet the same people going up that you meet going down. And I found that people who do not follow that philosophy, and there are many out there who are crooks, <laughs> might have a limited success. But after a while, they're out of the business. And so uh, I think it's a testament to Brian and, you know, Ty Scott celebrated his 40th anniversary, you know, a few years ago. And so to be able to do that, and I was fortunate enough to have over a 40 year career as an entertainment lawyer. And uh, I just feel fortunate that you, you, and I try to pass on to people that get with people that are competent, that are loyal, and uh, that you can work with and you can develop a good relationship. It's important to have that powerful team, lawyer, business manager, personal manager, tour manager, to make sure all those things converge together for the benefit of the artist. Liz, before you ask your next question, I just want to do a quick ID for those that have tuned in to bring it on. We're having a delightful conversation with John P. Kellogg, Berkeley uh, music business instructor and a music entertainment lawyer, and Bryant Scott, president of Ty Scott Music and Ty Scott Films. They're joining us to shed light upon the life and times of uh, those in the music industry and what this all entails. So, Liz, if, if uh, you could take it from there. Okay. Uh, Brian, this is for you. Uh, do you feel that music that comes directly from the scripture has as much impact on people as music that comes from life experiences? <laughs> Let me answer that. <laughs> I, I believe both are powerful, but uh, I don't think you can ever surpass God's word. God's word is living. It is, it is one of the only books you could pick up and read and get something, new revelation, new insight every time you read it. Uh, he said he, he and his word, he is the word. He said in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. The word is God. And so I don't think anything I can do can surpass God's word, but God inspires us. God inspires us to write, which then interpreted is God's word again, if God is writing through you. So I guess they're equally, if, they're, if it's inspired by God, I think it is as powerful as his word. So yeah. Okay. Now my next question, you've already answered that. And that was pretty much, when did you have that aha moment that made you realize that this is what God wanted you to do? So you've already answer that in my opinion when you said you walked in and your father said this is too expensive to have as a hobby but what about for you john when did you realize you had that aha moment oh go ahead john yeah uh aha moment 
Yeah, that uh, aha yeah. moment that this is what you were supposed to do. Well, you know, once again, it depends on uh, what it is. I mean, at first I wanted to be a recording artist, and I was. I, I went and I did that. I think the aha moment came when I decided to go to law school. I mean, I finally achieved my dream of recording with the National Recording Act, Cameo, and putting out their first record and touring with them. And uh, I decided at that moment, because I had applied to law school before I got with the group, and I was just waiting to get the results. And once I found out that I was accepted, I had to make a decision. And I saw some things happening with the group that made me know that I would not be able to fulfill either my creative or my financial objectives being in that group setting. So I left the group. And I left the group on a Monday. And on that Saturday, they were playing in the Superdome opening up for Natalie Cole. So I was crushed, you know? I mean, a dream gig. We had done some shows, you know, a couple of theaters and a couple of nightclubs. So it was an aha moment that I really recognized that I was doing as my dad said. And he said, always think with a long view. He said, think about what you're gonna be doing 20 and 25 years and when I thought about it and saw the situation with that group, even though I knew they were going to become successful, I only recorded the first album, so they weren't big at that time. But I knew that it just would never inure to my benefit. And uh, I looked at it like the case of the hare and the tortoise. I knew that the leader of the group would have tremendous success, and he did. But the other group members wouldn't participate in that. And I knew that in the long run, I'd be doing just as well, if not better. And over the course of 40 years, I've been able to see that, that come, come, come to pass. Okay, very Brian, good. Brian, you had a follow-up uh, to that aha moment question? Oh, yeah, because I, I, I had some ahas after that. And, okay. you know, we, we, uh, you know, one aha came in 1993, uh, January 28th, I had uh, taken my first vacation in five years because my second daughter was born and uh, called dad said, I had never taken a vacation. The company's doing well. And he said, take as long as you want. He called me back 15 minutes and said, cut your vacation short. Because uh, <laughs> our distributor just called him in that 15 minute time you know, span and told him that they were filing chapter, whichever one is all the way out, out of your organization. And they owed us a lot of money. We were going to get it. Yeah. And uh, I, had, I had a reverse aha moment. It was like, oh, God, why didn't I go to dental school? Oh, God, what, what have I got myself into? Yeah. <laughs> but I could tell you the next aha moment came over time, overseeing how God was able to, again, speaking to my dad's integrity, which you brought up earlier, Clarence, you know, I was in my twenties at the time. And my thing was they're filing bankruptcy. Let, we need to file bankruptcy, get all this royalty weight, manufacturing weight, everything off of us. And dad said, Nope. He said, call everybody, tell them we're going to pay them what we owe them. Um, and I was like, dad, you know, how are we going to do that? And he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name 
of the Lord. I'm like, how can you be so calm <laughs> in this situation? But I, I followed what he said. And I began to call, I called the manufacturer They because they had other uh, labels going through the same thing. And so they had been called and I called them and said, well, we're going to pay you. They said, we know you can't afford it. So we'll cut a deal with you. And they cut, I think our deals became like a dime on the dollar, you know, just to pay off the manufacturing debt. We went to John Key, who was our biggest artist and we owed money to. And instead of John saying, you can't pay me, I'm running away. That's, you know, Max Siegel got involved and we were able to craft a deal, a record deal, which actually launched the largest gospel record label that's out there right now. It was a three-way deal between Ty Scott, John Key, and Zamba that formed what is now known as RCA Inspiration of Verity Records. And so looking how just being honorable, you know, dad listening to God and then me following him um, unwittingly, <laughs> unwillingly, <laughs> but following him, um, how God honored his integrity, how God honored his sincerity. And, and that's why when you look at the name Ty Scott, it's, it's, it's equated with integrity. It's, in, it's equated with sincerity. And that's not always been me. But by allowing God to work on me, that's why I said that last aha moment is watching what God can take messes and turn them into, as a preacher would say, messages, how he can take tests and turn them into testimonies. God will work miracles if you give him something to work with. So the aha has been a lifelong aha. Well, I, if I could all right then. Up, if I could follow <laughs> up with one um, follow-up to Bryant, to what you said. Your thoughts after receiving the, the coveted Dr. Bobby Jones Lifetime Achievement Award. How did that feel? Oh, you know what? Honestly, I, I feels like another day at the office. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited that that others out there recognize you know, the labor, you know, that we put in, but I'm not in it for that. Um, I'm in it. I'm more excited when I hear a testimony of somebody that heard one of our songs and their life was changed. They were on the verge of committing suicide and God spoke through not something I wrote, but somebody I represent and what they wrote and what I've been able to help put into the atmosphere that God spoke through that and changed somebody's life, saved somebody's marriage help somebody through their healing process of COVID or cancer. Those are the things that bring me joy. And do you get those uh, letters often? Um, do they just stream in or how, how, how do people communicate that to you? I don't, we used to get letters a lot more. I don't get as many letters. I get emails, you know, sometimes now, but it's, it's mostly when I'm out, like just coming from the Stellars and, and having somebody come up to me and tell me, and it was an artist that I didn't even hardly remember. They said how a lyric, from that artist. And you know what? I forgot already. I forget, I forget the artist and I promised them I'll remember. So I'm going to go back and get this old timers to reverse itself later. But I'm going to remember because they told me to call this artist and tell them that this artist, no, it was John Key. Somebody came up to me and said, uh, I was just in Miami uh, two days ago. And this guy came up to me. I was down in Little Haiti. And this guy came up and he just started talking. And he asked what I did. And I told him, he said, I used to be a crack addict. I used to wander these streets. He said in this song by John Key, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. He said I, that song changed my life. He said, I put down the crack pipe. I found my way to a church. And he said, that song just brought me to church. So, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I'm not at a gospel function. I'm on the street having a conversation. And right. the guy associates what I do with the turning point in his life. 
That's amazing. So that wiped out no, one of my questions. <laughs> if you was motivated <laughs> by money or serving God, or were you just passionate about what you're doing? That took that question. <laughs> well, well I, in, fair, in fairness, I'm motivated by a little of each. So I have another question. Um, changing uh, trends, starting with old happy days, Bobby Jones saw a show and Kirk Franklin up to now and crossover. So are we looking at uh, losing the black identity, Brian? Or how are we bringing souls to Jesus? Or are we trying to capture the white audience? So what are we doing with these trends now with gospel music? Well, How's you, that happening? You, you must have been in my meetings for the past month. We've been I was in your head. I'm your cousin, so I was in your head. He was right there, Liz. <laughs> um, it's, it's an amazing thing right now. Music, um, you know, and John knows this, music is, is gone through, it, it's at a different place than it's ever been before. We're no longer in a sales industry. We're no longer in an industry where you hear a hit, you go buy an album or buy a CD or buy a cassette or even a download. As a matter of fact, Apple's considering you know, getting rid of iTunes. That is, you know, because uh, download sales are down 50% from last year so far. We're in a streaming world, which is not a sales world. It's more of a television type world. It's a consumption. We're all looking to get, all I need are your eyes and ears. I don't even need your money. I need your eyes and ears because that causes advertisers to come. And that's how we're making our money off of subscription and advertisers, uh, you know, but what we have right now, and I'm going to go a little deep here, uh, the church world has changed. The church world, there, there's several things that are leading to the fact, and it is a fact, that even though music is winning and growing by leaps and bounds every year because of streaming and the, even the Music Modernization Act and things that are happening, gospel music is not winning, specifically Black gospel music. Several reasons for that. One is, I don't think our audience, our audience has changed, but our audience has not changed as much as we think. Meaning, I believe our audience has been, for the most part, not a strict gospel listening audience. I believe the same people that listen to Oh Happy Day and to Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross will listen to some Earth, Wind and Fire and some OJs will listen to some Brian McKnight and some Drake and some Beyonce. We, we have a a um, very varied palette. <laughs> we like multiple things. Um, and it causes an issue now because I need you to listen to me a lot in order to make the same money that a decade ago, I just needed to get you to listen to me on a Sunday morning show or on Clarence's show or somebody's show, like it enough to go buy it. Now I need you to listen to it 1500 times in order to equate to the same money as spending your money one time. And we're not doing that as a community. We're listening to other stuff. And it is absolutely killing Black gospel music. To your other point, the diversity. If you look at the charts for the past two years, I can tell you on the gospel chart, there are only three artists who have made money. And they all have a common denominator. One is Kanye West. One is CeCe Winans. And the other one is Maverick City. The common denominator between all of them is that their listeners are not by and large black gospel listeners. 
their mm. white Christian listeners, mm. or in the in the uh, event of Kanye West, it's his hip hop. Kanye West had a very good gospel album. It wasn't for the gospel people. Is his hip hop followers all went and followed him and listened to his gospel CD. I mean, his gospel album, even this Sunday, he did a Sunday morning thing, which he did some genius. He took all the old choir songs and put them out and redid them. And somebody was asking me the other day, I was debating with my cousin who we debate a lot. And he said, well, Fred had had that idea or John Key had that idea. And they could have had that success. I said, no, they would have had success but not Kanye's success. Kanye is an enigma. Kanye is a brand. People follow brands. And because he presented it, he, he, he got it. And, and, and so if you look at the strict gospel albums with gospel, from gospel artists who only have gospel fan bases, they're not making money. We are surviving. And I'll say this, and guys, I'm in the same boat as RCA, Motown, all the big ones right now. We are surviving off of our catalog. I have a dozen songs which finance my company. Thank God for a dozen hits in the past. But uh, that's what's financing. I cannot break something new because I don't have the time, the time from people to listen. And so we have to go and be prophetic in what you're saying, Liz. We have to figure out new ways to, to uh, get to the gospel audience. There is a gospel audience out there, but my, like my wife, and I've probably been a little long with it, my wife is... The target audience, you Liz, you're the you're the target audience. It's, it tends to be a black female that is mm -hmm. the target audience for gospel music. I I watch with my girls, with my cousins, with my wife, how they spend their time. My wife is looking. She doesn't even watch TV. She watches people talk about TV shows. She watches comedy like Kev on stage, and she'll find out about something gospel because he mentioned it. She's not listening to gospel radio. She's not following an Apple gospel playlist, and so. I think we have to reimagine how we get to that consumer, how we develop products and still have gospel music, but we have to be more well-rounded than just let me make a song, send it to radio and think I'm going to make it. Things have changed. And these well, are meetings I've been like in me? the last month. <laughs> but I'm old school. What you going <laughs> to, I don't like all the, the new stuff. What about even the, uh, people not doing the old school with the choir robes and yeah. the stuff I like. That's gone. Well, well, let me let me ask you this: what What do you spend your time listening to? Uh, I went from <laughs> my husband's laughing. I I went to reading books. I didn't care for TV, but COVID, I flipped the script. Okay. So I may watch a lot of foreign films now. Oh. I don't. I, I don't care for Kanye West. So I don't know anything about that. Um, to uh, and, and I prefer if I'm going to look at something, I like what gives me comfort, the old school stuff. Um, I like the soul review stuff. I, you know, Tyron Cooper. Yeah. I love Tyron and what, what he did. So anything that old school from, from my day, from the 70s and 80s, that's what I prefer. And, and so you are fitting my test market to a T. That is what our audience is preferring. They're preferring what they're familiar with. That's me. And, yeah, and that's you, which is a problem for new stuff. I have stuff that you, like when you ask me about what songs are my favorite. I know you, everybody loves something about the name Jesus by Ransal and Kirk Franklin. Thank mm -hmm. God they love it. That finance. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. You know, we, that's one of those stable songs. My challenge still is, how do I get to you with new stuff? 
how to, and if, you, if it's in books, there's some kind of way I got to figure out to get you to like a book that I'm putting out. Or, you know, there's something I have to do because I'm not no longer competing with the next gospel artist. I'm competing for your eyes and ears. What are you spending your time doing? I need to some kind of way get in there with new product that you enjoy. Oh, wow. That, that, see, that'd be a difficult task. <laughs> yeah, I understand your problem. Yeah. Well, we're going to jump in for a quick ID break. Um, okay. Just tuned in to Bring It On. We're having a, a very in-depth conversation with uh, Bryant Scott, who you just heard, who's president of Ty Scott Gospel Music and Ty Scott Films, and then also John P. Kellogg, Berkeley music business instructor. And he's also an industry lawyer in the music business. They're joining us to shed light on the music industry. And um, Brian, I'll come back to you, but, but John, how did you first get started in the music business? You mentioned that you were with Cameo, but how did you then become a lawyer and now a professor at Berkeley? How did that all come, come together? Mm, interesting. Interesting. Yes. Well, you know, uh, when I went to law school, I went to law school at a time when being an entertainment lawyer was a very new thing. They didn't have very, and as a matter of fact, they didn't even have any entertainment law courses or even copyright courses. I went to law school, but I went there having gone from the road to law school specifically to become an entertainment lawyer. And this is what I tell people that ask. I tell them you need to affirm what it is that you want to do, because as soon as I hit the campus at law school, I started telling people I wanted to be an entertainment. Just about everybody said, what the heck is that? And you got to be out of your mind. But I said that to my entire three years. And after I graduated, a student who was behind me stopped me on the quad one day and he said, John, didn't you say you want to be an entertainment lawyer? I said, yes, that's what I want to do. He said, well, I just met the cousin of the OJs who studied to be an accountant down at Cleveland State. I went to Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And he said, you need to meet this guy. <laughs> and I met him and we became fast friends. He brought me into the OJs representing them right out of law school. So it's a matter of, uh, of affirming that, and that's what really set me on a trajectory to become successful as an entertainment lawyer, because I represented the old days, and then, of course, Gerald Laverne at that time was only 14 years old. But he was writing songs, and we knew that he was going to be a star. So, uh, But once the uh, new century came around in 2000, I started to see the music changing and gangster rap was big at that time and to be frank with you I, I wasn't into that <laughs> and I didn't have any desire I represented a couple of rappers but for the most part I didn't have a, a desire to represent gangster rappers and I said it I don't want to practice that kind of law and that's what made me think about becoming a professor of and the music business programs we just started to develop at colleges all across the country so I accepted an assistant uh, professorship at the uh, University of Colorado in Denver for four years. And then I got the job in Boston and Berkeley uh, as assistant chair uh, uh, four years later. And uh, I've been there ever since. Even though I retired from the Boston campus, I'm still working uh, in the online school. I'm director of the National of Arts and Music Business Program for Berkeley Online. And I'm just loving doing exactly what we're doing here, speaking to people all over the world in real time, which is just mind-blowing to me anyway. But uh, 
Yeah, that's that's been the trajectory. You know, I, I want to ask this for both of you all. What do you see as um, most impactful radio stations or XM radio? What's going on with that? Um, <laughs> XM is you could you, I could start the car and drive across the country, and I'm listening to your music all the way across the country. Radio stations fade or whatever, but tell me, what's the impact of uh, radio versus uh, XM radio? Well, Brian, you mentioned it. You said, where are the people listening? And I'll be frank with you. I listen to Kirk Franklin's praise every Sunday morning. And yeah. that's where I hear my gospel, all of the latest gospel music, you know? Yes. And and, and, and we're appreciative of, of XM, uh, Sirius XM Radio. Yeah, right. what, what many people don't realize is the United States is one of the only industrialized countries where artists and uh, rights owners, record companies, are not paid when things are played on terrestrial radio. We are one of the only countries that that happens in. XM, Sirius XM, we get paid. When I love, I just got my Sirius XM, uh, my check in my favorite today. It's, 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 it's a wonderful thing. Is that the one? Uh, it really is. Is that frame behind you in that uh, on that frame back there? Oh, they, I got yeah, I got some stuff going on behind. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, we we the record companies and radio stations traditionally have had more of a promotional uh, relationship. We we've tried to get uh, radio stations to break new artists. And that, that's how the relationship kind of started. You know, you get your DJs with spin records, they talk about them, they talk them up, people get excited, they go by. Um, it's not that way so much anymore. In many formats, including gospel, radio has switched to follow what advertisers want more than breaking new acts. Uh, I know we have several of the conglomerates that program gospel radio, they're starting to act like they're the DSPs. They're playing oldies but goodies. And so my personal thing is I'm, I'm, I don't mind you not paying me as long as you're serving your promotional. If you're, if you're serving in that role, if I'm creating new music and you're helping me promote it, and which is one of the things we talked about, Liz, that's one of the things that's gone away. Radio's not helping record uh, radios. Uh, radio's not helping record, um, uh, record companies break artists. They've gone to an oldies but goodies. So if you're going to play what I'm not benefiting from you play anymore because people already like it, pay me for yeah. playing it. So yes. um, that becomes the dance now. And there are there are some bills up on Congress where record companies are really going after radio stations saying, hey, you guys got to start paying us just like uh, you pay the, uh, the publishers and the songwriters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you see... Um... Do you see gospel music morphing? And I think I know the answer to this, but do you see gospel music morphing into something unrecognizable? And someone along the lines of Kirk Franklin's uh, favorite saying, if you think gospel music has gone too far. Um, I, I have some thoughts on that myself, but I want to hear your, your thoughts on that. You know, I, uh, my personal opinion is it's not the music as much as it is the culture. Church culture has changed. Uh, music has always been progressive. Thomas Dorsey was considered contemporary, was considered too much, too far when he wrote Precious Lord. Edwin Hawkins was considered too much when he wrote Oh Happy Day, the Oath of Minus. John Key, even though he was traditional church choir, was considered too much. It, we got all kind of flack because of the way he was delivered. Music's always going to 
progress in what we consider contemporary now, when we go and listen to what and categorize things for awards, if you're doing it like John did it, you're, you're a traditional, um, you know, you're the old school. Um, but I believe the audience has changed. Uh, and this is what we start, I started to hit on earlier. When I know when I was growing up, I was made to listen to gospel music. Mm -hmm. You know, my, I grew up in a household. That's what you're going to listen. You're going to listen to gospel. You better not bring that other stuff in the house. And so it trained me, you know, and I'm, and I'm part of the problem. I do not force that on my children. And I think that culture has changed. I think the church has changed. People don't attend church the way they used to. If they attend, it's more of something I got that was on my check mark of things to do. I went and I put my hour, you know, church, you don't hold three or four hours. If you heard, you got, you want to go to one of those churches where 45 minutes, you didn't got your two praise and worship songs and your 30 minute sermonette and you're out. That's our culture. Right. You know, even those who call themselves Christian, I let me get it and get and quit it <laughs> as quick as possible. <laughs> and I think that has destroyed the culture with that cultivates a love for gospel music. It just, yeah. So mm -hmm. I see the uh, older artists like uh, Shirley, Shirley Caesar and some others who are promoters of, I would say, the old landmark form of singing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and their music has endeared itself to us so much. Um, and then all these groups that are now getting older, the Williams Brothers and on and on and on, that endeared itself to Canton Spirituals. Oh, my gosh, man, you could I could play that all day long. But um, it's changed. It's getting more R&B sounding. Mm -hmm. it's getting more not so much hip-hop but it's just and and i and i kid my wife i said now did you hear jesus's name at all in that song <laughs> and, and and i can get all along like it that. but not in it not in it the singer's <laughs> doing all right. the dynamics and everything like i'm like okay all right all right all right and then after it's over i'm thinking okay it's on this station but I don't think I've heard anything affirming to my mm -hmm. faith. Now, I mean, and that may be super critical, and it probably is. It probably is. But, no, but you're right. You're right. You know. But I th think you're missing another key element, morphing into what some of my team would call three chords in a three chords in a vamp, and that's uh, white Christian worship music, where okay. black black is be it's all beginning to homogenize because people see the success of a Maverick City. And they're like, okay, in order to have success, I got to sound like them. So you morph your sound to be like somebody else. And, but what you're really appealing to Maverick City, if you go to the one of their concerts, before they combine with Kurt Franklin, that's a whole other topic, a whole other radio show. But if you went to a Maverick City before Kurt Franklin concert, it'd be 80% white people, 20% black. That's who they appeal to. Yeah. And, and a lot of our praise and worship style gospel artists are going that way everybody's like well that's you know they're trying to get that audience and and not to blame them a lot of them are just trying to make a living trying yeah. hey what what can yeah. i do that's relevant to where i can survive on some streams <laughs> well you know that's what i wanted to mm -hmm. oh yeah i i want to ask you about where are these artists working are they are they you know it wasn't time if you had a church circuit i guess it's still available for artists to work Gospel artists to work. I just saw uh, here in Cleveland, Shirley uh, uh, Caesar's going to be appearing at a hotel. And, you know, just an independent promoter is going to be in a hotel. Really, anything you want to do. Is there work out there for these 
up and coming gospel artists, and here is that live performance space. They they are it is coming back. COVID, I mean, COVID kind of destroyed yeah. it for a while. Everybody, yeah, you you had, but even you know the church even so even more. You you you've seen I've witnessed secular or general venues opening up where churches are still staying closed. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's some yeah. major churches that are just now coming back this summer. So if they're not even back for regular service, then that the touring opportunities for our artists who tour mostly in churches, most of them are not on big stages at arenas, they're in churches. Yeah. That's been one of the things with Maverick City. Maverick City has been able to tour arenas. And you didn't hear it here, but I believe that the collaboration between Maverick City and Kirk Franklin is more of a benefit to Kirk. <laughs> Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it's, it, it is it yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, where do you where do you see uh, where do you see Ty Scott heading? I see Ty Scott. I, I was challenged today. This this call, you guys got me on my day. This call is I had, you know, believe it or not, I work for a board as a president of a corporation, and my board. Congratulations, too. Congratulations on that appointment. You're the first black to be appointed in that. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. But uh the ties the board of Ty Scott, they actually got, you know, with me and said, hey, you gotta when when 90% of your money is coming from catalog and you're spending 80% of your budget on trying to break new stuff, something's something's wrong. And so I've been challenged and I don't have the answer, but Ty Scott, I've my I've been I've been held my uh my letter of direction, my LOD, write the ship, Brian. <laughs> and so there's some, uh, that's why I'm asking you questions, Liz. And I'm asking questions, even though I'm the one being interviewed, I got to figure out how to change this because it is, it's not pretty. I'm going to think right. about that. Yes. I'm going to think about that and I'll get back with you because I'm that group. I, I'll put some thought into that. Yeah. And, uh, and Jim is sitting here listening. He pays attention. He's in the music more than I am. So we'll we'll discuss that and we'll we'll get back with you. Now, now one area that I've been successful with lately, we just had another film release on All Black uh, on June 29th called The Fallen. And, you know, I've been doing movies every two or three years. You know, probably going to start doing, you know, multiple movies per year. That that is that's an initial thought that comes to mind. If I can get more rolling there and actually maybe even introducing music, you know, through that media. Yeah. I'm having trouble hearing you, uh, Philip. Are you having trouble oh, hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Are you having trouble yeah. hearing Philip? Yeah, I, mean, uh, I hear you now. I hear you now. now. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's. Uh, I would think it, it, with the flood of subscription-based uh, video streamers with Netflix and everyone, I think it's a great market to get into them. That might be the medium that you need to use to break the new artists around. And many artists now are starting to cross over and kind of morph into acting anyway. Yeah. As you did so well with DJ Cadden years ago. You know, I think you can follow that script again for new artists. It could really work. Yeah, so that that is that is one of the uh, one of the I guess what some people call low hanging fruit. When I've given the challenge, I'm like, okay, this is what I've done. How do we do more of this? And so I'm going to be looking at that, how, how, you know, figuring out how Ty Scott can invest more into that medium of film and television. You know, one other thing um, that might work is if you can secure uh, a facility 
the appropriate size and then just have a, a Ty Scott explosion once a month or something, bring out your new artists, <clears throat> excuse me, your new artists and then your older, you know, your more recognizable artists, have them perform and then have product there. Uh, it, area churches and people within the community and area come to realize, oh yeah, they have a coffee house or they have a gathering or whatever, and, and that could spin off with your films into something else. So it's, um, but you know, one thing, as we sort of begin to land this plane, I know exactly we're going to get the answer. I was going to ask you, does your music team still have devotionals and Bible studies and prayer uh, on a regular basis? Because when I visited you at your studio, your father stunned me because he said, come on, in, we're about to have a meeting. So I went in there, your father brought out this big Bible. And I said, okay, this is going to be interesting. And he started reading from scripture. And people were like saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he just started to expound on God's word. Now I'm thinking, wow, you do this every day. He said, we do this as much as we can. And I think the benefit and the blessing has been in that. Yeah. So the answer is there. It's going to yeah. come. I have no doubt, you know. But uh, is that a practice that you still continue with your team? Yeah, every, we have our staff meetings now. Unlike when you visited us, we that was at a, that was in a heyday of big staff. And we had a building and a lot of staff members. Now, uh, my staff is much smaller and decentralized. So okay. I, I, me and my assistant are the only ones in India, Indianapolis. Everybody else is dispersed over the country. Uh, but we do get together via Zoom or we use nice. Google, but uh, Google meets every Monday morning. And we do, uh, dad will usually pray and I'll usually bring a word. And that's how we open up our staff meeting. So, yes, we're still doing that. Amen. And the blessings follow. The blessings yes. follow. Um, John, as we sort of wrap things up, anything you want our listening audience to, to know about uh, the industry? Um, you know, we've heard a lot of negative about the music industry, the entertainment industry, because of a lot of the entrapments there. Um, <laughs> you know, people wanting to make it big, but all of a sudden crash landings and all this that, and the other. And their personal lives just go south. I mean, those are extreme cases. But uh, what positives can you leave us with today? Well, I think the positive is that uh, subscription services are still growing. The amount of money that record companies are making. You might you might want to might want to pull your microphone microphone out again. And the the money that can you hear me now? Better. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of money that record companies are making now from streaming is tremendous. Unfortunately, the artists aren't seeing that money like I feel they should. Uh, so uh, uh, there is a paradigm shift, of course, going into the streaming uh, world from sales that is really jarring for both artists, not so much for at least the major labels because they're making money a greater and greater share uh, more and more. And, and that's because they have bigger catalogs, right? You yeah. mentioned that. And they're making up 75%. I think you said 90% is from catalogs of what you're earning. Yeah. But I think for streaming in general, it seems like the streaming revenue is like 75% of the streaming revenue is coming from uh, catalogs. Yeah. And I see a big issue brewing between artists and these record companies who are making money uh, in great amounts. So I think that the record companies are going to have to increase their royalty rates from streaming uh, for artists. 
And I think it's important for artists to recognize that uh, recordings are no longer the moneymaker. <laughs> it's their attention getter. Right. And what they're trying to do is build an audience so that they can try to benefit financially through other means, through merchandise, through uh, possibly morphing into acting, sponsorships, endorsements, uh, products. Rihanna, who just became you know, $1.4 billion, she's worth $1.4 billion, not from music, it's primarily from selling products. And so I think that's the, the realization that artists have to have and hopefully it will still result in artists that love the business more than they love the money. It's very easy to follow the money and think that that's the thing. But like I said, you need to have the love for it, for the music that I think can sustain you in the long run. Well, on that note, uh, we have come to the end of an hour. Uh, I, I knew time was going to fly because yeah. gentlemen have so much interesting information to share. Our thanks once again to John P. Kellogg, Berkeley Music Business Instructor and Music Entertainment Lawyer, and Bryant Scott, President of Ty Scott Gospel Music and Ty Scott Films, for joining us to shed light upon the music industry. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Boone and our assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Program engineer Chantal LaFontant and original theme music was created by Jamel Effiem with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.